Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. Bob, it's been a little while since we've uh, gotten to sit down together and talk, and I wanted to bring up one point. It's in no way meant to be negative. They say the show must go on. And in this particular instance, the show is not going on. I'm speaking, of course, about the Dead & Company summer tour uh, that has been canceled. Please share your thoughts about this with us. Well, I mean, you know, what what can you say? First of all, it's sad to see live music and events go down, period. Uh, Although I'm sure that uh, we'll figure out a way to put the the show on to your point it must go on but the dead and company in particular it, it you know it's it's a it's a it's a hard one not only the dead and company because it's uh, the annual at least the last several years at Folsom Field in Boulder has been fantastic great crowd great venue just a lot of energy and uh and and the boys put on a heck of a show this year was going to be uh extra special because we were going to meet friends at Wrigley Field and at the Meadowlands in North Jersey this year so knowing that those things aren't going to go forward um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a gut punch, but, but, uh, but you know what, they'll be back and, uh, they'll be well rested and stronger than ever. And, you know, the, the thing that I'm perhaps most disappointed about is that we were going to go up to, to Aspen to see Bob Weir and the Wolf Brothers. And, uh, that's, uh, that was always a special event in a small, small venue up there. So, uh, that's going to be postponed and hopefully rescheduled as well, but, uh, only, only time will tell. Living down the road from Red Rocks and, and going there as, as, as often as I can feasibly do, uh, no matter who's playing. Uh, I always joked you can go see Celtic Woman at, at, uh, at Red Rocks, and it will be the greatest conference, concert ever. Not that there's anything wrong with Celtic Woman, if you know what I'm saying. Of course. And wherever, uh, wherever Larry Mishkin is, uh, I'm sure he's thinking we can still get our fix with uh, We're Wednesdays. Uh, of course, we're always recording on Wednesdays, but it is it is out there and it is available. Uh, I want to shift gears over. Uh, we're celebrating six years of uh, legal marijuana in Colorado, and uh, I know you have you've written about this in the past about the success story, if you will. Just looking at some figures right now, I'm seeing 1.2 billion dollars in the total taxes raised and collected from this industry. It, just speak, if you will, for a moment about what that means. That's a billion dollars of money that would not have been there if it wasn't for this industry. This is an extra billion dollars for our state. Um, how significant is that? Well, it, it's it's damn significant. That's a that's an enormous number. That's an enormous number on a on a, a state and national scale, let alone a global scale, on a burgeoning industry as quickly as as it's gotten there. Uh, the the fact of the matter is. The industry has uh, proved that it is uh, worth uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with other industries, um, uh, particularly new industries, that it's regulated, that its operators take things seriously, and that it doesn't have adverse impacts on society to date. To your point, in 2015, a a former student, uh, Rashana Patterson, and I wrote an article together uh, called Sprung uh, from Night into the Sun. It was published in a University of Kentucky Law Review. In 2015, we detailed all of the economic successes of this industry. Talk about arrests plummeting. Talk about 
black market and cartel marijuana in the United States going down, uh, declining DUI arrest, the reduction in opioid deaths, the job markets increasing, so forth and so on. All of these things continue to trend positive, and it's earned the right to stand, to my point, shoulder to shoulder with other businesses because it has contributed uh, to the public. It has contributed by way of tax dollars to uh, use towards positive things. And a lot of those tax dollars are earmarked for positive, beneficial, benevolent public uses from state to state to state. So it's earned the right to be here. Uh, despite the COVID scenario, it's a great, tremendous opportunistic time for the, this industry to you know, assert its place as an essential business. Well, and I just want to pick up a few points that you mentioned and also just state that uh, sprung from night into the sun, what a perfect way to uh, to categorize this, something that has simply been uh, not part of our economic system, and now it really is a part of it. And I want to go back to what you were talking about, looking at these figures from New Frontier data, um, you know, just between 2008 and 2017, a 92% decline in possession arrests. It's just, you know, everything is trending, as you said, in a positive direction. And I just, uh, I guess I'll just put this to you. And I don't, you know, I, I kind of know what your answer is going to be. But do you see any sign of it slowing down? Or do you see, uh, despite COVID, despite the challenges we've, we've all seen in the industry, uh, at least here in Colorado, and maybe a little bit more than Colorado, but do you see anything slowing this industry down? Or do you see it just at the cusp of continuing growth? As a practical matter, I do not. I, do not, I don't see anything slowing it down. However, we live in, in a terribly tumultuous and unpredictable political time. I mean, think about it for a second. Uh, it is, in fact, a coin toss, at least as we sit here today, as to who will win the election in November. And anything uh, that results from that election, whether uh, the Trump administration wins another term or Biden wins, at the end of the day, their treatment of cannabis is unpredictable. Um, it's unpredictable, and it could be used as a political football to continue to maintain the divide, uh, to continue to sort of create this polarizing uh, political divide that we've seen in this country on issue by issue by issue. So you can't predict that it will be full steam ahead. However, um, the tea leaves would seem to indicate that, as we've talked about before, history would indicate a, a, an industry such as this. Uh, uh, would would make it through, as we've seen the end of alcohol prohibition in the late 30s uh, as a result of the end of the Great Depression. Uh, we've seen country by country look at this as economic stimulus. Uh, Columbia just uh, published an entire policy in the last 10 days that talks about how it t tends to use cannabis for domestic economic development, not just export. We saw the president of Costa Rica say that a couple of weeks ago, and I think we're beginning to see from various members of Congress that this is the way out, whether that's hemp in the United States, whether that's outright legalization, or whether that's just progress by virtue of the safe banking bill passing as part of this second round of COVID legislation from Congress. Uh, that remains to be seen, but uh, it certainly seems like full steam ahead, but uh, who knows? Well, and, the, and everything you just touched on uh, really set me up for the next thing I want to ask you, which is about politics and uh, politicians and specifically uh, Mitch McConnell. You know, we're here as a, uh, you know, in Washington, they're trying to push forward some additional CARES Act. I believe it's being called the HEROES Act. And there is language in there, much more specific language about cannabis, especially compared to the first bill. 
And so, uh, you know, of course, when we think about Mitch McConnell, this is the guy who lobbied for hemp. He really, in some ways, is one of the politicians that spearheaded the, uh, the, the hemp movement and got the 2014 Farm Bill, the 2018 Farm Bill passed. He had a, uh, a bone to pick with some language in the, the present bill around studying the marijuana industry as it relates to diversity. However, I want to note that he did not raise any concerns about the Safe Banking Act, as you just mentioned. Um, so, I, I, of course, again, you look at politics, you look at how politicized everything is. I, you know, I understand where he's coming from. I understand the position that he's holding. But just interested in your thoughts on, I guess, cannabis, just as it relates to how it's going to be politicized going forward. It, it's going to become, and already has become, an issue that politicians have to talk about. Well, they've got to talk about it. They've got to form a position on it. And um, fortunately, perhaps, uh, particularly since Jeff Sessions has no longer been our uh, U.S. Attorney General, um, the discussion has moved beyond just the old, I'm not going to pay attention to this. This is something that I'm just not going to budge on as a policy matter to the point it's being considered. But the McConnell issue also highlights the faults in our two-party system here in the United States. I mean, think about it. How can you be so supportive of a politician on something that you believe in so deeply, like hemp uh, legalization, reform, and legislation, um, and then be so uh, you know, disappointed, perhaps, uh, of other policy positions that very same politician takes. The point is that Mitch McConnell was out in California studying the marijuana industry uh, as recently as December. We know that for a fact. We know places he was visiting. He was looking at how they bank, how they're organized, how the state, the inventory tracking systems take place. And by the way, that was right before California mandated their statewide tracking system. So they're learning. They're beginning to move past the topic of, nope, that's marijuana. That's bad. I'm not going to change my mind to, okay, you're telling me there's a way to handle diversion or you know impact on youth. Uh, and it's been proven in other states to work. Let's explore that a little bit further. I'm not here to tell you that Mitch McConnell is going to turn around and support national legalization. Um, but anything uh, can happen in this political environment, particularly as people get wiser and the argument gets better. It gets more refined from political cannabis lobbyists because it's no longer just about legalize it, legalize it, legalize it. It's about um, legalize it. Here's, in it. here's what's in it for you. Here's how it's worked. And here's how it benefits society. Well, and I, I, you know, I just had this thought, uh, which is you look at Kentucky and Colorado. It's almost like a tale of two cities, if you will. These are, uh, these are states that have been progressive with hemp, progressive in that side of the cannabis industry. We talk a lot about what the cannabis industry is, the different sides and facets to it, the different legal distinctions, particularly about industrial hemp versus marijuana. It's very interesting now. You know, uh, I guess six years since the 2014 Farm Bill passed to see how these two states have developed one with a progressive legal marijuana market, one with absolutely, and to my understanding, Kentucky doesn't really have any marijuana uh, allowance. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, when we just look at it from the plant perspective, what this plant can do and why it's valuable to society, it is. It's kind of a tale of two cities. Well, yeah, I mean, the people from Kentucky would often tell me that uh, Kentucky would be the 51st state to legalize marijuana. <laughs> uh, so at the end of the day, uh, there's certainly a divide, but it does have a rich history with the plant. If you've read a book called The Cornbread Mafia, it talks about the largest uh, cannabis bust uh, east of the Mississippi 
Um, and these characters are fascinating, and the history is fascinating. And let's not forget, Kentucky has this rich, rich history with industrial hemp as a leading cash crop in that state and one of the leading producers around the world. But as we've seen hemp in Kentucky, its bark has been bigger than its bite. All right, we're looking at a, a scenario where um, from the very beginning, everyone thought Kentucky had 30, 40, 50,000 acres, and it was at 3,000, and then 6,000, and you know, so forth and so on. It has been a leader. There's great operators there. There's great folks engaged in policy by and through Kentucky, but it has had its ups and downs because the industry has been too reliant, as we've talked about almost uh, you know, ad infinitum at this point, the idea that CBD is the only thing you can do with hemp. Uh, that's really been the primary focus of that Kentucky industry. And we're lucky here in Colorado that even though uh, marijuana and hemp are very different industries, regulated differently, so forth and so on, um, the, the investors, the operators, the folks that are on both sides, they tend to uh, uh, work in one when the other's not doing so well and thrive in another when the other one's just doing okay. Um, in a very upright, above board, and legal way. So it creates more opportunities for so-called cannabis industry operators in Colorado than the narrow uh, uh, situation in Kentucky. But this also is an, a great example of why that part of the world looks at something like smokable hemp, a topic we've talked about also many times, and says, this is a real thing. People want this. We need this. Why? Because it presents another way to utilize the crop besides just the old grain and fiber and you know, plastic and fuel and everything else that flows from it. It's just they don't want to go back to what they did uh, because the technology and the infrastructure is not, not there, and certainly the dollars aren't there right now. Sure. And and just to pick up that thread a little bit, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, not to make a blanket statement, but just a piece of history or a piece of uh, our society that a lot of people don't think about is the farmers, is about the agriculture sector here in the United States thinking about the bluegrass state and the history they've had with farming, the history they've had with tobacco, it does, it makes sense that there are correlations in why the smokable hemp industry, uh, you know, would exist there. I want to, uh, you know, just to come back to one point, the sprung from the night into the sun, states have been, uh, they've been experiments for success, if you will, in this, in the cannabis experiment as a whole across the country. Without federal guidance, it simply has been put on the states. And to bring it back to here in Colorado, it is a success story. And so we just hope to see that story and that, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, that narrative continue to unfold across the country, maybe spurred by the COVID pandemic. Switching gears, I want to uh, pick up a point that we had touched on in an earlier podcast today, which was, is, is Britain the new Canada uh, as, it, as it relates to investment and just where the energy is going to be. We saw, as you know, and you talk about it uh, you know, more than anybody, Bob, that Canada had all this energy a couple of years ago. It's where all the invest in investing was, all the money. There needs to, you know, it doesn't seem like we've identified what the new Canada is. I'm putting it to you now. Is it Britain? Well, it's a great question. I, th I think that... Uh Certainly the U.K. exchange and, and, and that part of Europe as a general statement, because you think about the Frankfurt exchange kind of similarly, uh, they both have uh, participated in different ways in the industry, and they, they both have the opportunity to um, participate in a more meaningful way. But COVID's thrown all of that off. All bets are off in that regard. But i got to tell you, if I look at the next public market, um, despite what I said a minute ago about the uncertainty going into our election and that anything could happen – 
I think our stock exchanges in the Northeast United States, whether that's NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange or, or, or some variation thereof, that's where this is going to happen again. The Canadian element uh, demonstrated a, an emerging market in a public stock exchange environment that was used to handling new and novel concepts and involved uh, in things that were, were based in, you know, basically nature, uh, plant-based uh, scenarios, minerals, oil and gas, things like that have always been prevalent on the uh, Canadian exchanges. So utilizing it for this purpose was not uncommon um, historically, but also you had Trudeau giving it a shot in the arm when he was uh, in the position of prime minister and you know, following through on a promise to legalize it and getting the support to get that done. So it was the first country in North America, and that means something to legalize cannabis. Um, because of that, they had a leg up, they had a legal market, they had an exchange that was uniquely situated for it. Things have changed a lot since then. The exchange in Tel Aviv in Israel has modified its rules to allow for greater investment. We'll see a peppering of these things throughout, but will we see another Canadian-like boom? If we do, it's got to be through the American exchanges. It's got to be, unless something happens dramatically in Latin America with their combined exchange and the economics begins to go in the right direction because their population has increased. There's a you know, large-scale burgeoning middle class. You've got a, uh, a, a great uh, future for economically for Latin America, uh, although that might ruffle some feathers along the way. Well, I think uh, you definitely have left us with a lot to dig in and consider there. I think that's as good as a place as any to call it. Uh, Bob, it's a pleasure to be here with you again. Likewise. Uh, thanks again, and uh, we will catch you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute. <laughs>